You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Mark DeLegge. Although the number of medical malpractice claims being filed has decreased, the cost of malpractice claims continues to rise. What's the relative malpractice risk for gastroenterologists? And what are the most commonly alleged errors? Joining us today to discuss malpractice claims in gastroenterology is Ms. Rebecca West, Associate Professor of General Medicine at the University of Virginia School of Medicine in Charlottesville and CEO of Piedmont Liability Trust, a nonprofit serving the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I have to start it off here and just ask you, what are the most common mistakes or malpractice risks for gastroenterologists? Well, it's really quite similar to what you see if you look at all specialties in the aggregate. The, for GIs, the primary risk is for misdiagnosis or delayed diagnosis. So it's a diagnostic issue rather than a procedural issue that you most commonly see. The second most common risk is, however, an issue with procedures that are, are done where there's some improper thing that goes on during the course of a procedure. But again, the most common thing is the misdiagnosis, and that is the same thing that you see if you look, again, across all specialties. The most common risk for malpractice is a missed or delayed diagnosis. Rebecca, when we sit here and we look at current trends in malpractice exposure for gastroenterologists, have the number of claims in the U.S. been increasing? They do look to be increasing just in the last year. It is the first time we've seen increases in a number of years, actually. It has been quite stable in terms of what we call the frequency, the number of claims filed, and that is good news. On the other hand, the severity of claims, what it takes, the amount of money it takes to resolve the claims has continued to increase. So if, as we look like we might be moving back into a phase of increased frequency, there is uh, growing concern certainly on my part and I think probably on the part of other commercial malpractice carriers that if you continue to have the kind of severity increases that we've together with frequency increases, we may find ourselves moving back into a cycle of crises more quickly than we typically do. Usually there are periods of crisis and then there are periods of stability in the uh, malpractice insurance market. But again, that's something to watch closely is actually what happens with frequency of claims. And it just does look like in the last nine to 12 months that there is some indication that claims are beginning to increase. Rebecca, do you think this is going to result in some major increase in malpractice premiums for gastroenterologists around the country? I think that the issue for gastroenterologists is going to be the same as for all specialties, frankly. And I guess it's one of those things where timing is everything. We're in a time of economic crisis, and that will have impacted malpractice insurers just as it has almost every other business, including, I know, physicians' practices as well. But for medical malpractice insurers, quite a 
large bit of their annual income, in fact, comes from investment returns. And right now, there's not any part of the investment market that looks very good. And most of the investment returns for malpractice carriers actually come from the fixed income, not the stock market. But all of that has been down over the last year. So again, if you have that kind of environment where your investment returns are down and you begin to see an increase in the number of malpractice claims and the severity continues to inch up, that's the kind of environment where we may, in fact, see some significant increases in malpractice premiums again. I think the positive part of the environment that's out there is, is as we look at healthcare reform, this is probably the best opportunity. It still is not a great likelihood, but it is one of the best opportunities we've seen for possibly getting some national tort reform that has been attempted in the past but always easily defeated. But there is strong movement. Actually, you can watch day after day right now legislation being either tacked on as amendments or as new independent legislation in an attempt to get some federal tort reform. And again, there is a huge push there and actually even some acknowledgement by the administration that they may be willing to sign a bill if that kind of restriction ends up in uh, health care reform legislation. I think if it's pushed by itself, it's not as likely to happen, but it may in fact end up in some piece of health care reform legislation. So it's still a long shot, but it has a better chance right now, I think, than it has in a long time. Do you think that these tort reform efforts are really focused around caps? They really are. I mean, the research does indicate that the pain and suffering cap, in particular non-economic damages, is the most effective form and really the only one that has any significant impact on saving dollars in the malpractice insurance arena. And there was an interesting attempt yesterday, I think led by Representative Mark Kirk, the Republican from Illinois, and he actually drew a distinction between the cost of health care in New Jersey and the cost of health care in California, and it's about double in New Jersey the cost that they set it forth per individual patient, and he attributes the difference largely to the tort reform in California and specifically points out the damage cap limits in California. So the rhetoric around that kind of tort reform and damage cap certainly has been heightened over the last couple weeks. Rebecca, for those of us who live in states that have caps, do you think by and large that helps us maintain our premiums as being reasonable? Absolutely. Uh, And again, the studies that are out there really show that it's the only thing. And and caps, I have to be specific because I come from a state, Virginia, where we have a global damage cap. That's useful, but the one that really is shown to significantly impact premiums that you pay is, in fact, non-economic damage caps. That's the most prevalent type of tort reform that you see is those non-economic damage caps. It's also a lot more palatable because you are paying folks for the actual losses that they have. The only thing you're restricting is the part of losses that are speculative, the pain and suffering type of things, emotional issues that are, again, speculative and allow juries usually impact these much, much higher awards. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights. I'm your host, Dr. Mark DeLegge. 
And joining me to discuss malpractice claims in gastroenterology is Ms. Rebecca West, Associate Professor of General Medicine at the University of Virginia School of Medicine in Charlottesville and CEO of Piedmont Liability Trust, a nonprofit serving the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Rebecca, I'd have to say that I look at myself as a gastroenterologist and try to put myself kind of on a scale of what risk I have compared to other specialties or other types of practice, meaning I look at the obstetricians, perhaps the neurosurgeons at being at tremendous risk. I don't even know who I would put at the low end of the scale. Maybe you do. Where would you put the gastroenterologist? There are a variety of rate classifications that commercial insurers or insurers of all type use, but one of the traditional ones is a rate classification system that spans rate classification of one to, say, eight. And again, some may have five rate classifications, some may have some subsections of that, but if you just take that kind of scheme of having eight different rate classifications, typically you'll see... OBs and neurosurgeons, sometimes orthopedics, among those three, they are the highest risk, those three without question. Different insurers will make one perhaps a little bit higher than the others, but they would be an eight. On the low end of things, you would have subspecialists, like if you take someone in internal medicine who's subspecialized in rheumatology, that rheumatologist would be a one. Gastroenterology on that kind of scale of eight would actually be a two. You'd be right there with the dermatologist. You'd be right there with the pediatricians, the general family medicine doctors. Now, a general internist sometimes is a two, sometimes is a one. So often general internists will be rated a little bit lower. But if you look at, there's an article that's been done in clinical gastroenterology and hepatology in 2008 that analyzed, did a nice job of analyzing Physician Insurers Association of America, which is one of the best places to get some physician claims data. But if you look at that Physician Insurance Association of America data, TIAA data, the closest comparable specialty of risk is dermatology. So your risk is, again, runs very similar to a dermatologist. If I look at myself, or perhaps I'm talking to one of the GI fellows just starting out, and we're trying to have a discussion about malpractice, what can I say about the likelihood of a gastroenterologist being sued during their career? Well, the one thing that I'd say is it's actually much lower than most other specialties, the vast majority of other specialties or subspecialties. So actually, it's really quite a good risk. However, if you are sued, the likelihood of your being sued again increases tremendously. And actually, there's a study that's been done of the National Practitioner Data Bank, which just collects, you have to, insurers have to report all payments on malpractice claims to that. It's a federal data bank. There's been an analysis of that, and it shows the same thing, that over 50% of the claims that are reported are from once a physician has been reported as having one payment, that they are double the likelihood of having another reported. It's actually even greater for gastroenterology. The study looking at PIA data anyway is greater than 70% of the claims are folks who have been sued previously. So your likelihood of being sued in your career is less than most other specialties, but if you get sued, your likelihood of being sued a second time increases tremendously. Do you think that's 
because of the way an individual practices? I think it must be to a degree, and I guess the most basic and classic advice for folks to avoid being sued is to develop a good rapport with your patients and to document carefully. I guess I'd make two comments. One, I think folks who are good communicators are that naturally. Some work at it and become quite good at it, but there are those folks who are better communicators just by nature, and I think that does help them. It doesn't prevent them from being sued, but it clearly does help them. Likewise, there are those folks who are really very attentive to their documentation and do a better job of documenting things and are probably more attentive when they have particular problems. I know that time runs short in the day and documentation, there's just more of it than ever that has to be done. But if you know that there are situations where you encounter either more difficulty with the patient, the family, or with the interaction that you have, whether it's a procedure or whether it's clinical interaction that's non-procedural, if you have something that just doesn't go quite smoothly, that's the time to take more time to actually document carefully. And really, again, studies do show that taking that kind of extra time in those instances does lessen the chance of being sued. And again, that's in an environment where we have less and less time to spend with patients, but it's still the bottom line in terms of avoiding liability. What about when I make a mistake, I realize it, going ahead and actually walking into my patient's room and disclosing it and apologizing for it, does that have any impact? Here and there, you're hearing a great deal about apologies and that that's a avenue for actually reducing malpractice liability. I'll tell you that from the outset, I certainly and everyone on our team and most that I know have advocated disclosing the truth. The biggest problem that I see is that when people talk about apologies, there's two things. To say, I'm sorry something happened and didn't go quite the way we expected, it's very different from saying an error was made, and you have to be very careful. I would like to thank my guest from the University of Virginia School of Medicine and Piedmont Liability Trust, Ms. Rebecca West. Ms. West, thank you very much for being our guest this week on GI Insights. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. 